This is a show about facing fear, unlocking courage, and taking action. Courage isn't necessarily a daunting thing. It's going to give you more purpose. It's going to give you more drive. It feels like making a courageous decision is going to get you closer to who you aspire to be. It's knowledge plus faith plus action equals courage. Isaac Newton once said to me in a dream, if I have seen further earnest is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. All of these like pattern recognition, you know, finding people who inspire you and, and trying to get your head around how they think really works. Long ago, two and a half decades to be exact, in a creative business galaxy far, far away, I was doing my best to navigate an advertising world as a neophyte creative. And I remember meeting this unique and mysterious creative thinker who was positioned, at least to me, as the guy. Air quotes. Fully intended. Seriously. He had created magic back at Wyden and Kennedy. He was the most interesting man in advertising. And since those days, I'm, I kid you not, I'm grateful that I've had an opportunity to volley high-level ideas back and forth and really learn from him. Today, we're joined by the one and only Ernest Lupinacci. Ernest, what's up, my man? You doing okay? Well, I'm doing fantastic, especially after that introduction. I didn't know that I was known as the guy. I've often been referred to as the Macaulay Colgan of, <laughs> of advertising after he had puberty. And um, although I, there was a period of time where I was known as the Winston Wolf a freelance. Well, I'll tell you what. So I remember, I don't know if you remember this or not, but like I started on one side of the brain and worked my way to the creative side. And before I ever met you through Jason DeLand at Anomaly, I was a neophyte, like young writer. And I remember sitting on a phone call at Messner Viteri Burger McNamee Schmetterer, or it may have been after the rebrand because we don't, we don't have enough time to go over that No, it, it definitely was... If it's 25 years ago, it was definitely when they were still messing material back to me, Burger, Schmetterer, and Infinitum. And I was one of those those little young creatives, and you were on a speakerphone as like the freelance mecca, and we're like, oh, this is the guy, Ernest. And then I remember getting off the phone, like, do you know what that guy charges? I'm like, oh, how do I do that? How do I get how do I get there? How do I how do I pull that one off? So okay. Anyway, look, Ernest is you just you're just one of the guys that like I could sit here and listen to all day. And actually, the point of today, we're actually going to change our format a little bit. Okay, we're going to embark on a unique format. You're a unique guy. You're going to get eight questions. I have I am wearing a whistle, people. Okay, is that an Acme brand whistle? <laughs> you know Can't. what? This, I used to be a lifeguard. I take my whistles very seriously. Well, look, where I went immediately was like, oh, another commodity opportunity that could be taken advantage of because there's really no brand in the whistle space. I assure you, amongst lifeguards, the Acme whistle, which I think was sold by like Wiley Coyote on, <laughs> on you know, Bugs Bunny, because literally it's the same brand, but I digress. All right. So here's eight questions, five minutes per question. Yep. I've got a running clock that we're going to start. And I think, you know, I think I, those are the same rules as $25,000 pure bet. I have bad news. There's no prize <laughs> other than wisdom at the end of each five minutes. So we're, we're going to start here uh, with the first question. Are you ready? I think so. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Question number one. You live your 
professional life, like a specific Kurt Vonnegut quote. Can you share the quote and explain what you mean by it? So when I was growing up, junior high school, I discovered this anthology of Kurt Vonnegut short stories called Welcome to the Monkey House. And I've become a huge fan of Kurt Vonnegut's writing. And um, he's an incredibly inspiring author because specifically he is very prolific, but he's also extremely eclectic, which is rare. I mean, it's hard enough to be prolific, but it's incredibly admirable to be eclectic. So a friend who knew that I was a Vonnegut fan, he sent me what I, I, I believe to be the last interview that Vonnegut gives. Now, he doesn't know it's going to be his last interview, tragically. But And the journalist, whoever interviewed him was merely, I mean, you could just tell by the, the form of questions that he was a huge Vonnegut fan. So at the end of the interview, he says, you know, Mr. Vonnegut, I'm sure you could tell I'm a huge fan of yours. And I've always been inspired not only by how prolific you are, but likewise, how eclectic you are. And Vonnegut looks at him conspiratorially and he says, because the guy's basically like, how do you come up with these ideas? And Vonnegut looks at him and goes, you want to hear a great idea for a story? And the guy goes, yeah, of course. And Vonnegut leans forward and he says, guy gets into a jam. Guy gets out of a jam. That's it. There's nothing left to talk about. <laughs> and, and again, in the spirit of like, simple is hard. You take a step back and you go, well, that's not every story. And in reality, it's like, au contraire, <laughs> name a story, you know? And I think that there, there's a quote, you know, there are these like pillars of knowledge that I get, uh, you know, there's a, I love quotes. I love history. I love backstory. So there's a famous quote by Sir Isaac Newton. And I would say, Isaac Newton once said to me in a dream, if I have seen further earnest is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. So all of these like pattern recognition, you know, finding people who inspire you and, and trying to get your head around how they think really work. So again, you know, having worked at Wyden, having worked for Dan and Jim Riswold and see Wall, and then looking at the kind of things that inspire you and then taking the time to sort of deconstruct it. This idea of like, yeah, in fact, every story is essentially the same story because an individual, a protagonist, gets into a jam and then they get out of that jam. And that comes from this ethos of simplifying, then exaggerate. You know, so all of these things, you know, they're they're kind of I don't want to say they're hodgepodge. You know, there there are these there are these insights that you know you hear them, they resonate with you. And then, like in terms of pattern recognition, either you project them onto things you're working on, or you consciously, subconsciously look at something that re you really love, and then you go, "Oh my god!" Right? Like I'm gonna extrapolate and go that you know, March of the Penguin, which is the most commercially successful, most celebrated documentary in the history of Hollywood, is to paraphrase Bugs Bunny, <laughs> the story of a penguin that gets into a jam and a penguin that gets out of a jam, you know? So, you know, those sorts of things, like in our business, the ability to simplify and exaggerate is really kind of our stock and trade. And, and when you say our business, because you're jumping around businesses, so, you know, what business? No. So again, in the spirit of, you know, some narrative alchemy, or as we refer to it in the industry, bullshit. 
Another thing I've learned, you know, from becoming an accidental businessman is people in general, but brands specifically, tend to think quantitatively when they should think qualitatively. So when I do B2B work or I meet a new client and, and they say, well, you know, what we do is really different or someone will say a client will commission me to do B2B work. And they said, well, you know, remember, we have so many different types of clients. And I said, you, you know, you sell cybersecurity. Don't all your clients need cybersecurity? And they go, well, yeah, but some of them are big and some of them are small and some of them are regional, some of them are international, some of them are pre-public, some of them are post-public. I go, no, here's how you sell cybersecurity. You meet the client and you do your homework. And then when you introduce yourself, you say, Mr. Berman, Courageous is exactly the kind of company we do our best work for because it's an extraordinary company. Now, extraordinary is a quality. It's not a quantity. (laughs) And it's also a quality that almost no one would deny possessing, right? So even though that sounds a little manipulative, it's like, no, here's how you tell a great story. So similarly... Wait, I thought that I thought this was the second question. Nope, on to the second question. We're pivoting now. Sons of bitches. Now, here, the good news is, let's talk specifically about every good story ever told. Okay. What does every great story entail? And if I'm a storyteller listening, what do I absolutely need to have in my story? So again, a couple of things. Like if I had, you know, in, in my Felix the Cat bag of tricks, here are a couple of my tricks. The first thing is you go... The greatest driver of innovation is empathy, right? So whatever you're trying to innovate, start with empathy. And even when you tell a story, I always joke around that the three best words to start any pitch for anything in the world are, you know how, because you want to make sure that the person goes, yeah, like, oh my God, it's like, you've known me my whole life. So the first is you think and you go, oh man, you know how, you always find something in the last place you look for it, right? Like whatever it is, it's like, does it possess that quality? Similarly, is it something that is universally understood, but infinitely adaptable, right? So everybody knows what just do it means, but they know what it means to me. Now, just out of curiosity, when you hear the phrase, just do it, what sport do you personally think of first? Oh, wow. Well, running. What sport? No, just that's the answer. The answer running. is running subconsciously. Okay. Why didn't you say fencing? Well, because you don't fence, right? Okay. So similarly, correct. You you want to think about it that way, which is, you know, the plot is specific, but the theme is universal. You know what I mean? Like Rocky is about a boxer who's an underdog boxer, and everybody is to some degree or another an underdog. Even the wealthiest people in the world think that they're the underdog right? Because that's how our brains work. So, you know, part of telling good story, again, is like you're building something, you know, you're, you're iterating. Um, one of my favorite clients right now is this guy named Sami Khan, who's built this wildly successful iteration of the metaverse. But he always says, look, if you're going to design anything, it has to have reach, it has to have relatability, and it has to have repeatability. And you're like, well, wait, yeah, you're right. <laughs> You know, like, so if you're telling a great story, if you if you aspire to tell a great story, and look, full disclaimer, I'm a commercial guy. I, I don't mean just I make commercials. It's like, I think about the books I love and the movies I love and the music I love. And I go, yeah, like maybe, maybe, you know, 
I'm Philistine, but it's like, I like things. Well, there's a theory too, that the best stories are about people like us doing stuff we love, right? Get the joke. Yeah. It's like people like us. So again, right. it's like stories about families work because we all know what it's like to be in a family. It doesn't literally have to be a family, you know, stories about underwear dogs work. And I think I've mentioned to you in the past, I'm a huge fan of the Robert McKee story seminar. Yeah. love that. I took it myself. You know, he's yeah. I mean, he's fantastic. Right. And he goes, you can't tell a story with fact without with facts and data. You have to use insights and truths. Similarly, Billy Wilder, the great director, goes, don't bring me logic, bring me emotions. So, you know, is it true? You know, you could, Star Wars is a fantasy, but the characters behave in a true way. You know, they're true to themselves. They're true to the story. Um, you create a protagonist. You give the protagonist a purpose. You give the protagonist a tone of voice. Whether the protagonist is James Bond or Nike. So all of these things, you know, like that's why to me when when clients started talking about brand narrative years ago, I was like, hey, man, you know, I've been writing jingles for years. But that was when there was that eureka moment where it's like, okay, wait a minute. There's a difference between writing an ad and constructing a proper narrative. Give me more on that. What? You, I feel like you're going to blow the whistle to me. Oh, look, we got at least a clear minute left on this question. Okay, so real, real quick. You wouldn't imagine that there's an algorithm for telling a story. It's like, oh, well, this is all about creativity. But there's arguably an algorithm for doing everything, right? So again, this is something I learned from the McKee Seminar. Every story needs an inciting incident. You know, why this, why now? So even when a client gives me a brief, the consciously, subconsciously, my first reaction is, why this, why now? You know, why are we selling the new, you know, Dodge Canyon Arrow now? No. Unfortunately, sometimes the client goes, oh, because they're coming out of the factory. Well, sure, but not a real inciting incident because I don't have a dog in that fight. Like that's a business problem. That's a business goal. It can be serviced by your brand narrative. In fact, it has to be serviced by your brand narrative, but you, you literally cannot tell a real story unless it has a proper inciting incident. Nicely done. Okay, look, if there was a pie chart of your life and the way you go about business, and we have to personify you, okay? You're, and here's the pie chart. A detective, a philosopher, a futurist. I, I put crystal baller first, but I figured, you you know, choose which one you want. So a detective, a philosopher, a futurist, a ringmaster, and a writer. And by the way, if there's a mis miscellaneous one, I'm not going to tell you how to do you. Permission granted to jump in. But what are your percentages? Does this feel like we're onto something? You know what? That's first of all, I love the idea of you know, um, Hebrew Kalman always used to say, "Don't give me a blank piece of paper because then I don't have to be creative." You know, it's like put me in a box; <laughs> I'll get creative. So that's actually a really great list and. So for argument's sake, I think most of the time I'm a detective because biologically, my father was a New York City police detective. One of my favorite shows is Columbo. I wanted to be an archaeologist growing up because I was obsessed with Indiana Jones. So the thing about literally like the notion of what a detective is, there's a great phrase that uh, 
one of my best friends and literally like a, a mentor in the industry, Tom Carroll, he says, he goes, the answers are in the archaeology. And I love that because when the client comes to you, you're not going to find the, an- you know, like the days of watching MTV and seeing a cool REM video and going, we'll just hire that production company. They're over because there's just too many things to compete with. So the first thing is you go, let's really, let's study this. Let's do our homework. Now, again, you want, you obviously need the facts and data. You need the objective realities, but then it's like, but what are the insights and truths? I think that's when the sort of philosopher part kicks in, right? The notion of evolving from, again, like these are the objective objectives, but now we have to arrive at the subjective objectives. And by the way, the subjective objectives, let's use Robert Goulet to promote college basketball, (laughs) cannot mitigate the objective objectives, which were, this is not a brand campaign. These are retail ads, right? So that's a healthy balance. Um, In terms of a futurist, I guess, you know, my version of being a futurist is the more things change, the more things stay the same. Right. Like I did an analyst meeting a couple of years ago, you know, friends of mine are investors. They were talking to a group about, you know, where streaming content was going. And the major concern was, will people ever have multiple subscriptions to all these different streaming services? And the consensus was, no, it's preposterous to expect people to do that. And I said, but wait, guys, we're all the same age. And when I was growing up, you know, my family wasn't wealthy by any means, but I remember my parents subscribed to Life Magazine, Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, People Magazine, Sports. Like those were all subscriptions. And every family's house I went to had Reader's Digest. And so I'm like, we've always had subscriptions. Like you're mistaking form and content. So for me, part of being a futurist is, and again, like in the spirit of you, it's not a bad idea to take great advice from brilliant people. The designer, Paul Rando, used to say, defamiliarize the ordinary, right? Like, you know, the the original iPad, the original iPod is the schematic of the transistor radio that made Sony Sony, right? Like there's something to be said for consciously, subconsciously, it's hardwired DNA. We see things, they're pleasing, they're familiar, but they're different, right? And then in terms of a ringmaster, that is not my area of expertise. I am the youngest of five children. And in my family, I'm the quiet, dumb one, right? So it's like, I, <laughs> like, I don't, you know, like, I don't, and, and again, like I've worked with and for some of the greatest like CEO, CEOs of the world. And I go, I can't do that. You know, it's like, I, I just can't. So ringmaster for me, and, and likewise, Whenever I would, you know, work with a quote-unquote vendor, like if I hired a director, if I hired an editor, if I hired a designer, the first thing I always try to say to them is, okay, now I'm the vendor. Meaning, tell me what you need me to give you. Tell me what you need from me so you can give me what I want. And I think that's the best way to work. Like if you're lucky enough to work with great designers and direct, whoever you're working with, if they're great, just say to me, just say to them, what do you need from me so I can get what I want? And then in terms of being a writer, you know, the more that I, the more that I, you know, aspire to be a legitimate writer, the more you realize it's like when you listen to really successful writers talk about 
what it means to be a writer, right? So anyone can play a guitar, but not everyone can be a guitar player. To me, the real thing about writing is there are no great first draft writers. There are just great rewriters. You know, that's the first thing you realize. Or someone once asked Stephen King, you know, what's the key to becoming a successful writer? And he said, well, read when you're motivated and no, write when you're motivated and read when you're not motivated. And then they said, yeah, but he said, wait, I'm Stephen King. And that's how I do it. So again, like my theory is, gee, my writing isn't, uh, my writing isn't evolving fast enough. Oh, maybe I should just read <laughs> when I'm not motivated and write when I'm not motivated. So I think, I think the majority of it is excellent work. Um, although I got to tell you, because we didn't actually get to the percentages. So detective. Oh, I was just going to rail that off. Okay, go for detective it. Detective is probably 40. Philosophers, 30. I'm already at 70. I would say futurist. I don't know. You know, futurist is five because it's more of just a pattern. Ringmaster is one. And writer is just like, that's just like the intel inside. You know, like I'm always trying to think like a writer, but what I'm really trying to do, and I know this is going to sound pretentious, but get to know me is think like a real storyteller. Like whenever somebody says I'm a storyteller, it's like, what do you mean by that? You know, like, like Bruce Springsteen was on Howard Stern yesterday. Bruce, Bruce Springsteen is an artist, you know, like, like, are you an artist? Did you have artistic inclinations, you know? <laughs> Are you a brand storyteller or are you just, you know, making digital ads for schedules? Like, you know, stay in your lane. Great, 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 great segue into the next question. So why did you get into advertising? What did you learn from it? And what's missing from advertising and those in advertising today? So a couple things. One is the reason I got into advertising was I am a recovering Catholic. And as a child, I think I would have like, in, in retrospect, I am a frustrated child actor. You know what I mean? Like, but again, growing up, I couldn't imagine, you know, going to my parents and saying, hey, I want to be a filmmaker. I think they would have looked at me and be like, yeah, good luck with that. Right. So um, the summer before college, I read the Stephen King book. Cujo. And the B story in Cujo is that the reason the mother and the child are stuck in the unair conditioned car in August being eaten by a St. Bernard is because the father is a creative director in advertising. And his client is basically like, you know, cocoa pebbles or something. And the dye that they use to make the crunch berries pink are, it turns out not to be um, digestible. So all the young consumers are pooping pink poop. And he's literally, the reason, he, this is a whole B story. Now I become transfixed by that. I'm like, oh wait, this is a job? Like there's a job that lives between painting in my garage or playing a guitar in a park or being a full-blown corporate stooge that I knew I could not be. So that's literally what gravitates me towards advertising. What I learned from studying advertising at a school that I didn't realize, it's like the first thing I discovered when I became, you know, a visual communications major at the George Washington University is, is there's advertising, there's design. I was in the design department, but I was always informed by advertising. In advertising, there are writers and there are art directors. So 
after I graduate, I realized that I probably should have maybe gone to a different college that had an advertising program. And all of my design professors said, you're very creative, but you should just be a writer. You know, so again, it's like, you know, follow your talents versus your passions, right? Like I will not be playing third base for the Yankees anytime soon. And then give me the third part of the question. Oh, what's missing from it, right? Today. And yeah. I, and it's it's funny. I had this conversation the other night. And again, I'm, I've become for good or bad a pattern recognition guy. So the biggest, the biggest challenge to the recording industry over the last 30 years is that they're not the recording industry. They're the music business. But as soon as you call yourself the recording industry and you think of making and selling and marketing records, then you, then you, you know, like you've, you've hung yourself because music can exist on different mediums, but you have consciously or subconsciously convinced yourself that you sell pieces of plastic with grooves in it. I really think the greatest disservice that the advertising industry did to itself was calling it the advertising industry when in fact, our clients don't come to us for advertising as a goal. They come to us to help build their brands. So, you know, call it semantics, but we're not in the advertising business. We're in the brand building business. And the mistake is like when I talk to guys, you know, our generation, guys and gals, our generation, but you know, look, this business was always, you know, dudes in the creative department. And a lot of them are like, yeah, you know, I wish people would still run, you know, 60 second commercials on MASH. And I'm like, okay, sure. But (laughs) that's like, I don't even think you could buy a 60 second commercial anymore. And, you know, we caught the tail end as both consumers and then young ad guys. Like we caught the tail end of the Mad Men era. That's gone. And, you know, complaining, complaining that, um, you know, a lot of people go, you know, nobody goes to the movies anymore. When we were kids, everybody went to the movies. It's like, when we were kids, we grew up in bedrock. There was no cable. There were no VHS. There was no, like, so you're, you're not just, it's not like apples and oranges. It's like, how could you possibly say, why don't people do this anymore? I always joke around that the question I ask is, do you, Ryan, know the most successful professional mime working in the entertainment industry today? God, no. No, of course not, because no one knows. And and here's the problem. If you do this for a living, nobody's looking for that anymore. Now, once upon a time, that was viable. It's just not anymore. You can put a moral imperative on it. I would encourage you don't. But again, it's like, listen, like the, the first rule of creativity is don't get stuck in a rut. You know, like we are never going to go back to making 30 second commercials that run on linear televisions. And when I say televisions, I mean boxes without remote controls or cable. Go. Okay. Talk to me about the Godfather gang and the offer. Uh, Because in some ways you're taking your own medicine here, right? Like it's still stories. The vessels might be different, but like, how did you land in this space? And like, where did your love of... Was it for movies, The Godfather? And I don't even know what the right way, what to call them. I don't want to get in trouble. So, for, for so again, like, I'm going to vamp this, but like here, here's kind of like a short history of a long story. Let's just accept the fact that The Godfather is arguably everybody's favorite movie, right? 
but it's also everybody's favorite movie that may be one of the greatest movies ever made for a variety of reasons like the writing the casting i mean it, it is a it is a it is a piece of craftsmanship that almost almost belies logic right i was in the godfather part two my entire family were extras in the godfather part two fun fact i'm not even going to get into it the movie itself there's a theory that one of the reasons the movie was so beloved in its day is first of all it's about a family at a time when traditional families were sort of changing and evolving and disintegrating do you know what the first line in the movie is you're going to tell me i believe in america which is very much a part of the theme of the movie nice and even though the movie takes place the the movie opens on the day of connie's wedding it doesn't open at the wedding it opens in the don's office when this honest man hard-working immigrant basically comes to the don and he says i have tried to do everything right America is where I came to make my fortune and I did everything and I worked hard and I played by the rules, but the the game is rigged. And that's when Don Corleone basically says to him, well, you know, if you'd come to me as a friend, then these animals who would hurt your daughter would be suffering as we speak. And if an honest man such as yourself were to make enemies, then they would be my enemies and they would fear you. And in 1972, when that came out, conscious of conscious, everybody goes, geez, I wish I had a godfather like that, yeah. right? But then, you know, at the end of the day, there's a story of a king and his three sons and the quest for power. I mean, these are themes that are universally understood, infinitely adaptable. So between watching it and loving it as a piece of entertainment and then, you know, kind of deconstructing it, going, why is this so fucking great? And again, you don't need to know that to watch it, but you need to, you want to understand it to write it. Now, again, in the spirit of always trying to solve a brief in a, in a responsibly selfish way, which sounds like an oxymoron, but it makes sense. In 1998, I had to write 16 tune-in commercials for ESPN Sunday Night Football. They were retail ads. They were not brand spots about how great football were. They were retail ads to get people to watch the San Francisco 49ers dismantle the, the Atlanta Falcons in the last week of August. And Stacey Wall, the great Stacey Wall said, Ernest, I need you to write these commercials. And I said, I will write these commercials if I can cast Robert Evans as the voiceover talent. Because I had listened to the entire book on tape. They used to be books on tape of the kids in the picture. And, you know, it's it's one of the greatest things in the history of mankind. I mean, that that exists is just spectacular. And the great thing about working at Wyden is mere, merely by expressing a passion. Like Stacey said, I don't even know who Robert Evans is. But if you're this predisposed to tracking him down, if he is, in fact, your white whale, reel him in. So we cast Evans. He's He does an amazing job. I mean, he, he was a child actor growing up. He read, he read, read each script, like one take. They were perfect. Like they, they just, they were written in his voice. They all, every spot starts. Okay, so now I create, I have this relationship with Robert Evans. And years ago, I went to look for a famous article that he references in the book on tape, not in the Great and Carter documentary, which itself is a work of art. And in the course of looking for that article, 1960, March 19, March 8th, 1969, issue of Life magazine. I found all these other articles that had since been digitized that were written while the movie was being developed. 
And, you know, I feel like I could teach a course on The Godfather. I didn't know, I didn't know Coppola was 30 when they hired him. I didn't know Al Ruddy had merely just come up with the idea for Hogan's Heroes. He never set, on the, set foot on the set. I didn't know Puzo was like 50 when he started writing. The, like, so again, it's, I saw it as this ragtag team of misfits coming together for a heist movie. Like that's what I originally wrote, which is a movie that takes place in Hollywood. In fact, the log line, there's a quote from Hollywood, which is, and I like to say it in Evans' voice, if you can't make the poster, don't make the picture. So before I even started researching it, I wrote the poster. And the poster is, in the fall of 1970, a group of misfits, maniacs, has-beens, nobodies, fakers, frauds, and con men got together to pull off one of the greatest scores in history. They weren't looking to rob a bank. They were trying to make a movie. Now, the inciting incident is, if Evans doesn't get this movie made, he's ruined. But the theme of the movie is, in Hollywood, parenthetically life, everything is personal. Now more so than ever. So, oh, by the way, the other, my inciting incident was my entertainment lawyer, Jeff Finkelstein, who's amazing. He said, you keep selling these really great treatments. Now you have to write a screenplay. So fortunately, Jeff shamed me into action, which kind of defines our relationship. I will extend 30 more seconds. Oh, so at some point, you know, um, oh, and then I evolved the screenplay. Jeff said, you know, well, if you write a screenplay, the problem is the only place you could possibly sell it is to Paramount. I mean, it's, you know, no other studio would be allowed to make this. And I said, well, I don't see that as a disadvantage. He goes, what do you think the chances are they'll option? I said, 50-50, they will or they won't. But then I turned it into a graphic novel. And he said, why are you going to turn it into a graphic novel? I said, it'll make it simpler to sell. And he goes, but it's going to be hard. And I said, I didn't say it'd be easy. I said, it'd be simple. So part of it too, for me, on a personal level, it's like, if I really believe in all of this, if that's my brand ethos, then you know it's time to make the donuts. You know, which is ironic because Ron Berger, who was one of my mentors at Mester for Terry Berger, back to be Schmetterer, came up with it's time to make the donuts. All right. Next question. Fear and courage are kisser. Fear and courage. You know, yeah. look, how do they both show up in your work life? When do you dance with fear? Like, are you the type of guy that when you're looking at a blank screen and that sad little sent you know a little moment you know you can't write anything it's like is that fear or is that excitement and then what where can you sense courage at play for you so here's here's a couple of things because again in the spirit of manifesting your fear in a useful way as a recovering catholic years ago i had sold a treatment for this high concept historical fiction to Sony and a friend of mine read about it. And he's like, this is amazing. He's like, you know, what's your process? And I'm like, my, my process, do I have a process? My initial reaction was my process was I opened uh, the tuition statement from my son's private schools and then threw up in my mouth and said, you better write something or, you know, you're going to have to sell your kidney. But then I realized, I really thought about it. I said, do I have a process? And I realized my process is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Emotional Grief. Have you ever heard of that? No. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a psychiatrist in the 1970s. As cancer became epidemic, she theorized that when you are diagnosed with terminal illness, you go through five stages of emotional grief. They are anger, 
denial, negotiation, acceptance, uh, negotiation, depression, and acceptance. So again, anger, denial, negotiation, depression, acceptance. And I went, oh my God, that's my process. As soon as I get a brief to, to an assignment I wanted, I go, what's the positioning for the brand? I'm like, how the hell do I know? Like I literally, I get angry. Then I go into denial. I go, I can't figure this out. I am creatively bankrupt. Then I negotiate. I'm like, do I have something I haven't sold before that I could use again? Then it's full-blown depression. I'm ruined. I'm a wreck. I'm a disaster. Then it's acceptance. I go, just write something. Just write something. Just write something and then send it and then tell the client, I apologize. I am a fraud. And, and invariably <laughs> what I write, I'm like, oh, that's, that's not bad, right? What I learned was I was afraid to go through that process. So I just hoped that if I didn't start by the time I started, I wouldn't have to go through the process. But then I was courageous enough to go, hey, idiot, you're always going to go through the process. Just go through it. Go through it as quickly as possible. The other thing is fear is literally imaginary. Danger is real. But fear is imaginary. Like, for instance, it would be dangerous to swim in the waters off of Montauk if the waters are, are ridden with great white sharks. That's dangerous. But if you won't go into a hot tub because you're afraid of sharks, like, okay, but that's like, that's make believe. So the other thing, too, is it's like, wait a minute, like, what am I afraid of? And is it really just my imagination? No, there's a great quote by Spielberg. He was when he was when he was promoting Lincoln, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and the interviewer said, Why did you start making films? And he said, Well, I found that by making films about the things I feared, it would help me deal with my fears. And then the interviewer said, Well, what are you afraid of? And he looked at her like she was crazy and he went, Nazi sharks and aliens. Like Get to know me. <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, it, it's really it's really part of that thing of like repeating almost mantra like fear is imaginary, danger is real. Yeah. You know, like, I love I love that thought, by the way, of those two worlds and and helping yourself spot out. You're basically talking to yourself, right? Like, hey me, that one's imaginary. Hey me, that's actually dangerous. Well, again, because don't forget the power of our mind to convince us of things or to convince us not of those things is pretty extraordinary. And also don't forget the reason people love stories is because here's how you tell a great story. You come up with your plot, you come up with your theme, and then you just prove and disprove the theme relative to the plot. But do you know what you call the squiggly line in writing? The proving and disproving of the theme? No, what is it? Drama. That is literally how you dramatize a story. And the reason people love that is, here's me ordering lunch today. Um, sir, would you like to make that burger a platter? Time freezes. Should I make it a platter? Should I not make it a platter? What would it say about me if I made it a platter? Would it, am I arrogant? Am I pretentious? If I don't make it a platter, am I, am I afraid? Are all my dead relatives, all my dead selling <laughs> relatives going to appear to me? in a Dickens, Dickensian moment and go, who are you to have the fr Get a load of Mr. Big Shot with the fries. Now, we all watch movies in our head. Most of the time, they're fantastic. They're extraordinary. They're not authentic or credible, but they are fantastic and extraordinary. So often when a friend of mine goes, 
I want to write the script, but I'm convinced that the heads of all the major talent agencies are conspiring to ruin my career. I go, okay, interesting story, not credible or accurate. So here are your choices. Stop watching that movie playing in your head or write that. Write that. I, I would watch that story, sensing the whistle. Yep. Well done, sir. Um, okay. <laughs> Look, I think that this question, just to be clear, was very thought out and and difficult to bring forward. But you'll see why. Talk me through two imaginary mentors that you have and two real mentors that you've got. Wow. That's a good one. That is a good one. Well, I will say this. <laughs> In the spirit of gallows humor. And I love, one of my favorite things too when I present is either, you know, someone once complimented recently, they said, you know, I love that line. You know, it's so interesting and you can do so much. And I said, we well, you know, I mean, it's it's meant to be a double entendre, which of course is French for double entendre. Um, <laughs> but I love, again, like reading and hearing these thoughts that resonate with you. So I always joke around that two pillars of my existence are these two great quotes by Jean-Paul Sartre. Quote two is, hell is other people. <laughs> you know, like, like, I look, like at this point in my life, like all I want to do is be on the dark side of the moon with a cup of coffee and a computer. Yeah. So hell is other people, Jean-Paul Sartre. And the other great Jean-Paul Sartre quote, which again, resonates with me being a recovering Catholic is, we are our choices. You know, yeah. A friend of mine said to me recently, she said her therapist said, whenever you said I should have, just said I chose to, right? Like I should have not gone out last night for Halloween, you know, dressed like a sexy hamburger and woken up in the, you know, the deep fryer to McDonald's. And it's like, but you chose to, should not have, but I chose to. So the idea of like these things, you know, these Sartre, you know, so John Paul Sartre, like that to me is, those are like the good guardrails. Um, but also in terms of like a mentor, like somebody you aspire, I mean, my my friend Judith Regan, the publisher, she published this thing called The Godfather Notebook. It is the prompt book that Francis Ford Coppola made not to direct The Godfather. He made it to write the screenplay. <laughs> If you've never seen it, get it immediately. But when you look at the meticulousness and the effort, you go, okay, this is what you have to do to make a movie like The Godfather. No, actually, this is what you have to do to pray you can make a movie like The Godfather. And it isn't easy, but it's simple. So, you know, someone like Coppola, you know, would, at 30 years old to be put, to be handed that responsibility and to do it and to just never get, you know, to never give up is extraordinary. Um, so, you know, imaginary mentors are people like that. They're people who you just go, here are real people telling you, yeah, it looks easy now, but I assure you it was a shitstorm." And then in terms of real mentors, I mean, listen, and, and I literally cannot believe that Dan Wyden no longer work, walks the earth. Like that just doesn't seem possible. But working at Wyden and Kennedy when I got to work there with just hundreds, not dozens, hundreds of people who were just world-class in every category, not just creative, you know, best business affairs, best producers, best account people. So Dan is somebody where you just go, this guy 
isn't just talking the talk. Like, and by the way, he put that thing together and let lunatics like me, right? Like he said, here are the rules. Now go break them responsibly, right? So that I, I just having freelance at so many agencies, great agencies with great people, but having worked at Wyden in six years and three offices, I just went, I don't think, I can't imagine that there's there's anything like that. So I'm going to say Dan, but also just the environment he created, you know? I mean, some of my oldest, best friends were people I worked at Warren with. And then trying to think of like, like, you know, there's, listen, here's the thing is I am inspired and in awe of so many people, right? That, you know, I'm trying to think of another other mentor where you just go, this is somebody that I just look at and I go, I may never be an artist, but they're certainly inspiring me to be a craftsman. Yeah. Like that sense of like, you know, to just do it meticulously. Years ago, I got to consult for Ron Howard on these commercials he was working on. And, you know, again, like someone like Ron, first of all, he is the nicest guy in the world. He is Opie Cunningham and Richie, um, you know, Opie, yeah. that's an old line from Saturday Night Live. He's Opie and Rick. Like he's, he is authentically that guy. One of the hardest working human beings I've ever met in my life. And you go, oh, it's not a question of, if you are so successful, why do you work that hard? It's, oh, you are so successful. And when I say hard work, it's not, it's not the manicness of, um, I always say they're like crazy tech clients. Panic isn't passion. Fear isn't focus. And motion isn't movement. Just running around screaming, break things, move fast and break things. It's like, no, that's the motto of Otis, the drunk on the Andy Griffith show. But again, like getting... Here's what I loved about your answers. First of all, on, on the imaginary mentors, to me, it's always a mirror, right? It's always a mirror of like what you aspire to be like and who you wish you were or who you've become. So the idea, the craftsmanships of the imaginary mentors, right? Like you can see, I know to the eye, regular right, see simple, but the details and the meticulousness and the pain Right. That right. That really is real. Now, for the viewer, it's not pain. It's just beauty. It's magic. And it's also. And I know this is going to eat into my time, but there's a great quote by Albert Camus, the, the you know, absurdist philosopher. And, you know, the, you know, the you know, the famous myth of Sisyphus, the ancient Greek myth of Sisyphus. Now, as a Westerner growing up in a Judeo-Christian society, you hear, well, there's this guy and, you know, he has to push this rock up the hill every day. And at the end of the day, after finally doing it, it rolls back down. The, the reaction is, well, that sounds like the worst form of torture. So Camus' interpretation of that is the struggle for greatness is enough to fill one's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy because <laughs> it's so counterintuitive to go, oh, you know what? I, th I think he's really enjoying that. I think he's really getting fulfillment out of that. So again, when you think about what it takes to climb a mountain, you know, play a sport on a professional level, write professional. I mean, Bruce, this Bruce Springsteen interview that Howard just did, like, just listen to that. Even if you don't like Springsteen's music, you just go, this person, is just pursuing this on a level that, you know, it's it's another level of consciousness that, that you and I may not possess, 
you you can't out look at that and go, that's what it takes. And and I'm gonna find the thing that I can pursue like that if I'm lucky. And then if I'm l- even luckier, I can get paid for it. Well, and again, I I never worked at Widen. It's probably one of my because I, I value greatness. Like I want to be great. I want to be. I I can't explain why. I'm sure I could do the work. By the way, I just know it to be inherent to who I am. But when when you look at your mentors, the imaginaries, and the reels, my sense of Dan and I only met him a few times was like the ability to create space and a bar for like what's the what the rules are going to be and then what are the rules that need to be broken, but to do it the right way. There's a lot of goodness in that idea. Here's like, so again, pattern recognition. Like one of the most frustrating things in the world, I think to everybody, but especially me, is hypocrisy. So here's a great example of it. The pilgrims flee England because of religious persecution. And then they start a colony that burns witches. So they weren't against religious persecution. They were against being persecuted. It turned out that they were very pro-persecution. A lot of agencies are started by people who hated the system, but then they started an agency that had a system. The thing I always admired about Wyden and Kennedy is if you were nine and you came up with the Super Bowl idea and Nike bought it, you went and did it. There was never that thing where like you presented to your group creative director and then they presented the creative director and then the grownups got to make the commercials. And if you were lucky, you were one of the 27 names in the credits and, you know, communication arts. So the fact that this guy made a list of everything that frustrated him about the industry and then said, I'm going to create a place that doesn't alleviate me of those frustrations. It alleviates every one of those frustrations. That's power of good. That's good. Um, okay, here we go. Last four, three or four minutes. Look, everybody everybody that has made it this far is clearly interested in, in your story, in your ability to tell a story, creative business, um, anything that's painting the future. You, you've come this far and you have the opportunity now, Ernest, to sort of provide the last four minutes of advice or wisdom to leave them with. And again, I don't know if what group are coming from brands or agencies or story or curious people or Hollywood, but knowing they've made it this far and you've got the floor for, I'll give you five. You got five minutes. What do you want to leave them with? So again, a couple of things is in the spirit of, you know, there's that great phrase, you have to eat your own dog food. So one of the things I always say to a client is, well, how do we avoid getting pigeonholed as a wax paper company? Or how do we get pigeonholed as a, you know, a paperclip company or whatever, right? Like that's the fear. And I go, well, remember, people don't buy what you make, they buy what you believe. So just start there, right? So someone said to me once, they said, well, what do you believe? And I said, you know how, say I'm using my own term, you know how they say there's no business like show business and everybody goes, yeah. And I go, bullshit. Every business is like show business. Right. But I don't mean star fuckering, glitz and glamour. It's like, if you can't make the poster, don't make the picture. It doesn't literally apply to making movies. It's like, can you articulate on a post-it note what you're about, what this endeavor's about? You know, like these are things that like you, you kind of need to be able to do. 
regardless of what you're doing, like whether you're throwing a, a dinner party or, you know, designing the next mile high building. So again, like in the spirit of pattern recognition, and by the way, I selfishly constructed my own brand narrative that allows me to revel in the things I like to talk about. So watch the movie Unzipped. If you've never watched the documentary Unzipped, it's one of the most inspiring movies in the world because of course it takes place in the world of fashion, but it's basically Rocky II, bless you, retold in the context of fashion. Because the movie opens, it's the morning after a disastrous fashion show. Isaac Mizrahi's fashion show was so bad that the reviews aren't just professionally negative, they're personally hateful. And then he has six months to do his rematch. But it's a real story. And he just is like, I am going to get this done or I'm going to try, try trying. And then the other thing I say is watch Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Because as the title would suggest, <laughs> this gentleman, who arguably runs the greatest Japanese restaurant in the world, is at any given moment doing one of two things. He is either making sushi or he is dreaming of making sushi. Now, it may not take that level of determination and dedication for you to succeed at what you're doing, but it might. <laughs> so entertain the notion that it might. And then just say to yourself, like, am I willing to do what I have to do? Because if I'm not, it doesn't mean I won't be successful. It just means it's going to be an uphill battle. And it's already an uphill battle, right? So really, you know, I think it's one of those things. It's like my decision tree in life now is would I rather do it and wish I didn't? Would I rather not do it and wish I did? <laughs> So, for instance, as one of the great introverts of our generation, whenever one of my friends is like, do you want to go to Burning Man? I go, no. And they go, are you sure? And I go, I am quite sure. Because every year I think, would I rather go to Burning Man and wish I didn't? Would I rather go to Burning Man and wish I did? Didn't, you know, like, and the answer is I would, I would always rather not be there and wish I was. But there are things like, you know, every once in a while I get invited to something and I go, oh, Oh, yeah, I'll be there because <laughs> I would rather be there going, you know what? This isn't as good as it would. But, you know, and then and then again, like know yourself, you know, like two of the greatest behaviors or flaws or shortcomings that drive me crazy. And it's not like I don't possess them, but two of the worst things is don't be a magical thinker. Right. Like, don't look at me at five o'clock, four o'clock on Friday afternoon while we're having coffee in Soho and go, hey, I have a flight out of JFK at six. Do you think if I leave at five, I'll make it? And the answer is no, no, ne never in a million years. By the way, that yeah. is not imaginary. That is dangerous. But I'm saying like, that's bad. Like, that's like, hey, maybe if I just start this college essay on the way to, you know, the, it's like, no, that's magical thinking. You know yourself. You're, you know, it's called the time-space continuum. At 8.15, you can't rush to an eight o'clock meeting. It's the time space, it's magical thinking. And then the other one is don't be a dilettante. You know, don't walk by the Met and go, yeah, I walked by the Met and that uh, you know, that Monet exhibit that looks like crap. It's like you walked by the Met. You know, it's like 
like I was joking around this, I'll recommend a book. You know, a friend of mine goes, you know, I, I really want to start pursuing long-form writing. I go, well, you know, you should really read this book. And then three months later, I go, how's it going? They go, well, you know, and it's all that like magical thinking, right? Like, I'm just hoping I'll wake up and I'll be able to write the next great American novel. I said, well, have you read that book? And they said, no, but I bought it and it's on my nightstand. And I said, well, interestingly enough, a scented candle is on my nightstand and that book is on my nightstand. But <laughs> unlike the scented candle, <laughs> the book actually is going to require me to read it. So part of it is like, be honest with yourself. Oh my God. He did great. He did great. Hey, thanks for playing around with this experiment. And the reason I felt like you'd be game for it is there's just so much to like learn from you if you're paying attention. And there's times when you'll say something that is so thought out and short, but you won't give it the space it needs because it's just your normal. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I love that. I want to, I want to let's write that down. And there's so many of them, Ernest. Well, again, and, and in all seriousness, I mean, I feel very lucky because I grew up with four brilliant, fun, smart, older siblings. And I'm always predisposed. It's like, you know, you know, like watch the great documentaries, read the great books, go, like whatever your jam is, do it because the first thing you realize is it's like, you know, like there's this weird reality that Willis O'Brien designed the special effects for King Kong and Ray Harryhausen met him and, and he became his mentor. Ray Harryhausen changed special effects for eternity. And like, I think like George Lucas, like, you know, it's like, it's like this guy begets this guy begets this guy begets this guy begets this guy. And even Sting, Stephen King, so many years ago said, gee, you know, so many of your books are like H.P. Lovecraft novels. And he goes, yeah, <laughs> like, like, you know, like this idea of like, don't you know that, you know, George Lucas, someone said to Lucas once, gee, Star Wars is so informed by that Akira Kurosawa movie, The Hidden Fortress. And Lucas goes, there's a line in Star Wars where one of those jackasses who's breaking Darth Vader's balls goes, you know, your faith to this weird religion hasn't conjured up the location to the rebels' hidden fortress. It's like, yeah, like become a student of the things you love because you realize that the people who inspire you go, oh, yeah, well, what I did is I took the courses, I saw the films, I read the books, I asked the questions. Well, and this is a great place to wrap. So, and this, this is my takeaway from today know yourself number one right we are our choices right as you said um i love fear is imaginary and danger is real i think having that conversation with yourself and then keep coming back and i think this is one of the hard ones when you actually do this it's easier for a brand to do this but for yourself why this why now why this why now is a is a brutal one and a tough one but if you're going to do it, whatever your jam is, do it, which takes work ethic. If you have that work ethic, you probably need a process. Your process, anger, denial, negotiation, depression. Yeah, it's like acceptance. know yourself. It's like that's, you know, what is, what's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning? And you know? it, it ends with people don't buy what you make. They buy what you believe. And it, it's so funny yeah. to, to me. If you believe, do you believe in yourself? If you know yourself. It's to believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, 
maybe you're not doing the right thing for yourself and maybe start there. Like, what do you need to do to believe in yourself exactly. and then go do that? Jim Carrey said once at a, at a graduation commencement, he goes, you know, people say, well, you know, you shouldn't study acting because it's a really tough business. So why don't you do something safe, like deliver the mail? And he goes, you could suck at that too. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and I'll leave you with this one and this will be part of our next whistleblowing conversation <laughs> alternative and opposite are not synonyms yeah. right so if someone says why you only present one idea or present another idea and i go why because it's the opposite it's like if you're afraid of this idea and you think it's crazy the other one might just be another crazy idea that you're a fear of those are alternatives chocolate and vanilla are not opposites they're alternatives so, you know, this so is these words matter. Words matter. And I will say um, the one place where I will I will disagree with you on, on the whole commentary <laughs> was there is no doubt in my mind that Ernest Lubinacci is a showman. Now, I don't know what percentage of it is. Let's say it's 15 percent. I don't think it's for That's the ring. You didn't listen. You didn't say showman. You said ringmaster. Well, ringmaster is showman to me. Ringmaster okay. Like the right amount of show and biz, and I don't and think I, I see what you mean now. Oh and, no, and, don't get me wrong. It's like, listen, as my mother Gladys used to say to the neighbors, "Don't encourage him." <laughs> Be like I, I like to tell a story. I, I like it. But hold on, but it's I don't not, like. I know. I'm like, it's not for the wrong reasons. Look, I'm at peace with when I take a stage. Uh, my business is not to share knowledge; it's to transfer knowledge. That's a big difference. So the showman part, where to pause, where to pace, the preparation, the meticulousness, nature of that reality. If you're going to land and transfer knowledge so people get the impact of the story and you've done the work, I think that's the part that even back as a little neophyte with hair at Messner, I remembered this guy who had that, he had that part figured out and I don't think that's a net. I think it's a positive, not a negative. Thing. I'm sorry. Like I said, is yeah, you're right. Like to me, you know, listen, Frank Sinatra. I mean, the fact that Frank Sinatra was the first person in the history of entertainment to be the number one star at the box office and on the record charts at the same time, you know, but he put in the work, put in the you work. I mean? And listen, when we met, I had talent, but I didn't have experience that's a big difference is understanding that if you're blessed with talent, you're born with talent. You're not born with experience. And if you fall in love with the experience at the risk of failing, then that becomes transcendent. But as soon as you say, I'm afraid of fail, it's like, well, okay, but that's table stakes. Failure is an option. Yeah. You know, Anyway, uh, listen, you, I really enjoy this. I'm so, Ernest, I'm so you're the man. great Thanks that you so, asked me. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm sure we'll have you back. We'll do some more whistleblowing. Stay courageous. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Next time, just put a shock collar on me. It wouldn't <laughs> be any less dis disconcerting. This was fantastic, and, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Courageous Podcast. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. See you again next week.